All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to our 11.30 service here at Citizens. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, really want to welcome you. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor here at Citizens. Um, would love to get to know you a little bit better, usually myself. Uh, some of our staff members, volunteers, were hanging out at the info table after service. So uh, if you have any questions about ways that uh, you could get plugged into our community, um, I know the city and, and the church can be a little bit overwhelming at times, so we'd love to get to know you um, and answer any questions you have. Uh, with that, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 to 22. Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 to 22. Uh, if you're following along on a phone, um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation, and um, it's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 to 22. This is the reading of God's word. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi Hariroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we dive into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Um, well, uh, if you've been with us, um, we are continuing our year-long journey through the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a children's Bible that takes you through the larger story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation in a way that's really accessible, I would say, not only for children, but also for adults. And today we're looking at what is arguably the most celebrated event in Israel's history, the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, uh, in the black community, you have Juneteenth. Uh, I'm a Korean-American. In our community, we celebrate Gwangbokjeol, uh, which commemorates the day Korea was liberated from colonial rule. And it's this um, event that is passed down from generation to generation, um, this story that gets passed down from grandparents to parents to their kids. And this is that event for Israel. Okay, this event has a lot of historical significance. It's an event that's referenced over and over again throughout the Bible as the primary symbol and paradigm of God's deliverance. Right? Even in the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul reference the crossing of the Red Sea and he compares it to our baptism in Christ. He says, you know, just as the exodus out of Egypt was a physical salvation from a physical slavery, our baptism in Christ signifies a spiritual salvation from a spiritual slavery. And one of the things you forget is that before Jesus, whenever God's people talked about God's salvation, they weren't talking about the cross or the empty tomb. They were usually referencing the Red Sea. Okay, this was, this, this had that kind of significance. And the story of the Red Sea is particularly, I would say, relevant to us because I think it captures what following Jesus often feels like. The Red Sea is a story about being stuck between what was and what will be. It's about a people trying to break free from their past, but their past coming back to haunt them. It's about the tension you feel when you're trying to make a change in your life, but you can't seem to shed old demons old patterns of behavior, destructive mindsets that won't seem to let you go, right? And to give you a little bit of context, in Exodus 14, uh, the Israelites have just been freed from 400 years of slavery and oppression in Egypt, right? In the chapters right before this, God completely demolishes and humiliates Pharaoh. He makes the most powerful leader of the most powerful nation in the world look small, Right? He sends 10 devastating plagues that by the end has Pharaoh begging the Israelites to just leave. And they're free to go. Right? And it's this climactic moment in the book of Exodus when the Israelites, after being enslaved for 400 years, pretty much just pick up their things and walk out of Egypt as free people for the first time. But the question you start asking as you keep reading this story is, are they really free? Like, are they actually free? Because it doesn't take long for the Israelites to realize there's a difference between being set free and actually living as free people. Right? Put another way, their departure from Egypt was not the end of their journey toward freedom. This was the beginning of their journey toward freedom. Right? Because bondage, you have, like for, Israelite, for the Israelites, bondage is all they've ever known. So now they have to unlearn their old way of life and relearn a new way of life. You know, I reference this movie a lot. But um, some of you are too young for this movie. It's a shame, but it's a movie called Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies of all time. But there's a guy in the movie by the name of Brooks Hatlin, right? And this guy, he's been in prison his entire life. That's the only reality he's ever known. And um, at the end of the movie, he's actually freed, 
Like he gets to be a free man and he's led out into the real world and he literally has no idea how to function in the real world. He goes out free and he's like, he has all the privileges and opportunities available to free men, but he's like, I don't know how to live like this. And so he ends up committing a petty crime just so he can go back into prison because he's like, I know that was prison, but that's the only reality I've ever known. And so it's probably better for me to go back there. Right? When you've had a narrative that's defined you for so long, it's not easy to break out of that. We often think, right, like just because you become a Christian, all of a sudden all your anger issues go away. All of a sudden all your childhood trauma just disappears. All of a sudden you don't struggle with depression anymore. All of a sudden like you're supposed to be able to quit all your vices and addictions cold turkey like that. But there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that we become free people overnight. Right? We're set free instantly, but we have to learn how to live as free people. Is a person set free in one moment? Absolutely. Does a person know how to live in that freedom? No, that can take a lifetime. When my first child was born, I became a father. I did not deserve to be a father. I knew nothing about what it meant to be a father. I did not know how to change a diaper. Um, there was nobody, like, none of my, I was one of the first friends in my friend group who had a child, so I did not know what that was going to be like. But somehow they, God entrusted me with this great gift of being a father. I would say eight years later, I am still learning what it means to be a father. That reality was absolutely true the day my first daughter was born, but I feel like every day I'm learning what it means to be a dad. Right, when I was 16, I got my driver's license, right? I can't believe the state entrusted me to drive a vehicle, right? Uh, if you've ever been in the car with me, it is like fear for your life, you know? That, that's when all my friends become charismatic, right? They start praying in tongues to the Holy Spirit because like I've been driving for many, many years, okay? I did not deserve that license when I was 16. I probably still don't deserve it now. But every day I'm learning what it means to be a driver, to hold that privilege, to be on the road. And this is what our relationship and what life with God often feels like. The Israelites are out of Egypt, but they are still far from the land of promise. They say it takes four days to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. God now has to rewire and reteach his people what it means to be free. These people who have only known one reality their entire life and their first big test is at the Red Sea. Okay, and we're going to unpack this story in three parts. The detour, the decision, and the deliverance. Okay, if you're taking notes, those are the three points. The detour, the decision, and the deliverance. Okay, first the detour. One thing you have to realize is that even the fact that the Israelites are at the Red Sea is the result of one long detour that God has taken them on. Okay, we didn't read Exodus 13, but I'm going to put verses 17 and 18 on the screen. We read this. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now that's a very interesting detail that they mention 
that there was a main road, there was a fast road, there was a much more efficient way to get to the land of promise, and yet God did not lead them on that road. God took a longer road, a more roundabout road that would make its way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. If you actually look at a map, there was a way for the Israelites to get to the promised land without going through the Red Sea at all. Like, why, why God, are you making this harder than it has to be? It almost feels like God is intentionally sabotaging his people after they're freed from slavery. So much so that at the beginning of Exodus 14, which we also didn't read, it says that Pharaoh looked at that and he was like, they must be confused. Like, they have no idea what they're doing. They're trapped in the wilderness. Actually, we should go get them. I know we said leave, but they clearly have no idea what they're doing. And he got all his chariots, all his horsemen. He said, let's go, let's, let's get them. Oftentimes, the ways of God don't make any sense to the world. Like, God's route and his chosen road and path for us is very confusing to people watching from the outside. When we launched um, Citizens in uh, November of 2019, we launched at Roybal. Um, you know, people who know my story know this, but I fought, like, being a pastor for most of my life, right? Like, when I got married in 2012, my wife did not think she was marrying a pastor. I always say it was the greatest bait and switch ever, right? She knew that, she never knew she was going to be a pastor's wife, right? And she was like, are you serious? Like, you did that after we made our vows, right? Now I have to be with you forever. And, like, I, like people said, have you ever thought about ministry? I fought it. I said, nah, no, nah, that's, that's definitely not for me. I mean, it, I was 36 when finally I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll give this a try. Maybe I'll answer the call of God. I felt like I was so late in the game. All my friends had gone to seminary in their early 20s. Here I was, like two kids in, trying to figure out how I was going to finish seminary and, and, and replant this church. So it took me so much to even get to a place where I felt like I could be a pastor. right? But I said, you know what, God? If this is what you want me to do, fine, I'll do it. Four months at Roybal. Okay, during those four months, I'm still trying to figure out my voice. I'm still trying to learn how to preach week to week. I'm still trying to like, learn what it even means to be a pastor. First week of March rolls around. We have our first baptism service. I'm like, man, I'm finally starting to feel like, get my bearings. I think I kind of am starting to understand how this whole thing works. Momentum is building. Boom. One week later, later the whole world shuts down, and it's the pandemic. And I'm like, like what are you doing? Like, I thought you wanted this. You know, like, I thought you wanted to, me to be a pastor. I thought you placed me here for a purpose. And God said, I did want it. But now I'm going to teach you how to be a pastor. For the next 16 months, you're not going to see your people in person. And I'm going to get rid of the crowd, and I'm going to get rid of the stage. For you to know that to be a pastor, you don't need a crowd in the stage. In fact, that's the last thing. I want you to know about being a pastor. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to place you in the home with your two young kids and your wife, and you're going to spend every waking moment with them so that you know that ministry always begins in the home first. Start by loving your wife. Start by loving your kids. And then he said, oh, by the way, I know it's hard, but this is also election year. It's actually going to be one of the most controversial election years in history. Oh, by the way, 
There's this big virus that's still going to go around. By the way, there's going to be racial, social strife. By the way, there's going to be so many people in your congregation who need so much emotional care and attention. And I, like during mid-2020, I was like, there has to be an easier way, God. There has to be a, a shorter route. And I felt like God was saying, but this is what I do. This is what I've always done. I never take the easy route because I'm less concerned about where you're going and I'm more concerned about who you're becoming. He needs to get the Israelites to the Red Sea so that they're forced into an impossible situation where they have a body of water in front of them, the full force of Pharaoh's army behind them. They're in like this lose-lose moment. And multiple times we read that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would keep pursuing the Israelites. And you're like, did I read that right? Like, they're already going to be at a dead end. Why would God harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he keeps pursuing them? Why is God seemingly orchestrating this horrible situation? And here's where you have to read the Bible very carefully because the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a recurring motif in, in the book of Exodus. And if you actually go back a few chapters before this, when you read about the 10 plagues, it's very interesting, right? And, it, and the, the biblical writers are very intentional here. In the first five plagues, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Depending on what translation, you'll see some variation of that. That Pharaoh's heart became hard or he hardened his own heart. And so God sent the plagues. But strangely, you'll see a shift. In the second group of plagues, plagues 6 through 10, we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right? And then God sent the plague. So was it Pharaoh? Was it God? And I believe the biblical writers keep it ambiguous for a reason. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Like, there's this tension that we see throughout the Bible, this tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's too simplistic to say that, like, God is completely not in control of anything and we make our own decisions. But it's also too simplistic to say that God is in control of everything and we're just robots doing what he tells us to do. So was it Pharaoh? Was it God? There's this tension. And it's this idea that the fact that God is in complete control over our lives doesn't absolve our responsibility, doesn't absolve the choices that we make. But at the same time, it reminds us that there is no choice that we can make that can thwart the perfect plans of God. That often he will use the greatest of human evil to accomplish his purposes. And we have to hold that intention. So when we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart here, I think a better way to interpret that is that God let happen that which was already happening in Pharaoh's heart in order that he might use all of it for his glory and our good. You see, God needs to get the Israelites to a place where they have to deal with all the baggage they're carrying. This is 400 years of trauma that they're carrying in their bodies. And unless they're backed into a corner, unless they're forced into an impossible situation, they will never grow. And we know this about our, old, our, our own lives. Right? They say that our circumstances do not change our character, they reveal our character. Right? When you're backed into a corner, it doesn't make you a different person, it actually shows you the person that you are. 
When you're afraid, your true self begins to come out. And so part of embracing God's freedom is embracing God's process, as long and as windy as it is. Because God is so committed to your freedom that he will take you on a route that doesn't make sense to the world in order to grow you and to mature you. Okay, the detour. But that brings me to the second point, the decision. Because God has led the Israelites on this big detour, they are now forced to make a decision. Right? There will always come a point in our journey of faith, there will always come these like very important milestones in our lives when we will be forced to make a choice. Will you trust God and move forward? Or will you go back to old habits, to old ways, to old mindsets? It's easy to say you trust God when things are going well, but what about when all you see in front of you is water? All you see in front of you is chaos, and you look up and you see the armies of Pharaoh descending upon you, Will you make a decision to trust God then? You see, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, I'm assuming they left with their heads held high. They were like, this is amazing. I mean, just like that, you know, we're free. And here they are technically free, and yet you see, when they're forced to make this decision, you realize that they're still enslaved, that they're still paralyzed, by fear, so much so that because what the way forward looks so unclear, immediately they're like, wait, I think it was better back there. I think we need to go back to Egypt. You talk to anyone who's ever journeyed through substance abuse and anyone who's tried to get sober, and they will tell you that that initial withdrawal period is excruciatingly hard. And sometimes they will tell you that it's so hard to believe that life on the other side is actually better than life as it was, right? On one hand, you know, like cerebrally, that the old life was killing you. You know that your substance abuse was actually destroying all your relationships. You know that it was wreaking havoc on your life. But when you're up at night and you're breaking out into cold sweats and you're shivering and your body is having an allergic reaction and it's breaking down, sometimes you're willing to trade that freedom for familiarity. Sometimes you say, just take me back. This is too hard. In the same way, when you begin to follow Jesus, there are a lot of things that aren't going to make sense, and they're going to make you wonder, did I actually make the right decision? Because often the way of Jesus does not equate to immediate tangible benefits or immediate clarity, right? Let's be honest. Sometimes it's way easier to be angry than it is to forgive, right? Because you're like, okay, I got to forgive this person. We got to have a conversation, conversation doesn't go well, got to bring in a mediator, and, you know, that's going to be like another few years of healing. You know what? It's easier to be angry. It's easier to be bitter. It's easier to be resentful. You know, I'd rather just sm talk smack about this person easier. Sometimes it's so much easier to wear a mask than it is to build a relationship and show someone the ugliest parts of who you are. We're masters of that in L.A. Sometimes it's so much easier to say, you know what, I'm going to put up a front. It's so much easier to put up an Instagram post that says, 
Look at my beautiful life. Look at my amazing family. Look at everything I have. It's so much easier to do that than actually get into the messiness of relationships to get vulnerable, to confess your sins, to confess your brokenness, to show people the parts of yourself that you're ashamed of. It's so much easier often to work yourself into the ground to keep pushing, to keep grinding, than it is to stop, to Sabbath, and say, I don't need to do anymore. I'm just going to rest. My identity is not in my work. My identity is not in what I've accomplished. Sometimes it's so much easier to do that than it is to stop and simply be. It's easier to hoard than it is to give our time and money away. It's easier to just... It's, sometimes it's easier to go back than it is to change. And so rather than allow God to change us, we go back to the very thing that was oppressing us because we're scared God won't provide. Maybe you recently quit your job because you wanted to be more present with your family and you, you hated the person you were becoming your job was turning you into this monster. You were working all hours of the day. You had no time to rest. You had no time to connect with other people. And so you took a step out in faith and you felt like God was calling you to quit your job and you did. One month goes by, things are great. Three months go by, you start seeing all your friends go on vacations. You look at your own bank account and it's going down. It's dwindling. You start to get scared. You see the Red Sea in front of you, Pharaoh's army behind you. And you're like, Maybe it was better. Maybe I should go back. You forget that that job was oppressing you, and that job had you enslaved, but because you're scared, God won't provide. Often, we convince ourselves that Egypt was better. Every day, we find ourselves in front of a Red Sea, right? Something will happen, someone will say something to you, and you will have to choose to either go back to what's familiar or choose to move forward into the life God has for you, no matter how that looks. I mean, this is Thanksgiving week. Many of us are going to go spend time with our family. You come to church on Sundays, you hear you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you. You're created in his image. You feel like you're finally like healing from all your body dysmorphia. And you're like, okay, this is good. Boom, you're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner. Your parents are going to say, you look like you gained some weight. Immediately, you're going back. Take me back to Egypt. I hate my parents. Don't do that. Don't say that. This is the human condition. This is the default posture. When we're scared, we will choose familiarity over freedom. Now, what you see in our text, strangely, is when faced with that same decision, the Israelites actually make the wrong decision. And like, I had to read that a couple times because every time, I don't, I don't know that I ever remember reading this text and realizing that the Israelites actually chose wrong, right? Like, I always saw the crossing of the Red Sea as a symbol or as this story that was about the Israelites' unwavering faith, right? They come out of Egypt, Pharaoh's armies chasing them down. They see the Red Sea and they're like, no, we believe we're going to take a step out in faith. God's going to part the Red Sea, and they go through. But actually, when you read the story, you realize, no, they, they weren't thinking that at all. They were like, take us back there. It was better back there. Even in Psalm 106, right, they, uh, the psalmist references this exact event, and this is what it says. 
When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. They rebelled by the sea. They didn't stand firm by the sea. They rebelled by the sea. But the next words in the psalm are very telling. It says, yet God still saved them for his name's sake. Yet God still saved them for his name's sake. And that brings me to the final point, the deliverance. I want you to think about this. The Israelites have seen with their own eyes water turn to blood. They have seen frogs crawl out of the Nile River. They have seen swarms of locusts and gnats. They've seen darkness cover all of Egypt for three days. They've seen the most spectacular displays of God's power. But when backed into a corner, it's like they forgot everything. If you look at what it says in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. There's no Moses. Can you ask God to do one more thing? No, it's like Moses, we're scared. They're coming. Take us back there. And they're like, why didn't you just leave us there? Didn't we tell you we'd rather stay there than not? And it's so funny, right? Because they're lying now. Like, if you actually read the book of Exodus, never do, do they ever say, leave us alone because we want to serve the Egyptians. All right, this is basically the first instance of gaslighting in the Bible. Okay, <laughs> like, you think gaslighting is a 2020 phenomenon? No, no, no. Like, they were gaslighting Moses in Exodus right? He's like, you said that? They're like, yes, we did. And this is what happens. We begin, when we're scared, we begin to blame and gaslight people all the time. We're like, why'd you tell me to break up with him? It's three years now. I haven't gotten a date. I'm so lonely. I'm never going to get married. Why did you do this? And you're like, I, I mean, you're the one who told me you were miserable. You're the, you're the one who told me you could never see yourself marrying him. They're like, no, I didn't. Gaslighting. Because we're scared. The Israelites are so paralyzed by their fear that they're like, it'd be better to go back to Egypt and be slaves than to be here. Their old life kicks in. All they can see is Pharaoh. In their minds, the only options are serve Pharaoh or die. God is not even in the equation. Like, God is probably like, wait, what about the frogs and the locusts? Like, remember that? No? Like, serve Pharaoh or die. This is what 400 years of trauma will do to you. You can't even see God in the equation. I mean, this happens to me all the time. Like, there's like one issue in the church, and I'm like, this church is imploding. It's over. You know, and God is like, well, 2020, like, remember? But when you're paralyzed with fear, you can't even see God. So what do we do? For the Israelites, they're not even thinking about how dehumanized and oppressed they were in Egypt. 
They're willing to go back because at least it was predictable. And the only person in the story who believes God can do something about this is Moses. He's the only one. But here's what sucks. Moses gets no credit for this. In fact, God blames Moses for the Israelites' lack of faith. If you read the story, the Israelites, they're complaining, they're screaming out, and Moses is like, don't be afraid. God's got this. He's going to fight for you. All you need to do is stand still. And the very next verse, God is like, why are you crying out to me, Moses? Moses is like, that wasn't me. That was them. And he's like, why are you crying out? Tell the Israelites to move on. God treats Moses as if he were them. And then notice what happens next. God says to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. A few moments later, Moses does it. The sea parts and everyone walks through. First, God treats Moses as if he were them. And now God treats them as if they were Moses. They didn't believe rightly. They didn't believe God could part the sea. It was only Moses who did. And yet when Moses raised the staff, everyone got to walk through. You see, their deliverance required a mediator to do what they could not do. Their deliverance required someone to stand in the gap, to be a substitution for his people. Friends, there are many moments in life, and there are going to be many moments in our lives when it is going to be hard to believe that God is present or at work. Everything in us will want to go back to Egypt. We will have Stockholm Syndrome, and we will want to go back to the very life that was oppressing and enslaving us. And in those moments, you could just try harder and muster up enough strength to move forward. But we all know that cannot last. We need a mediator because we don't have what it takes on our own to move forward. And the good news is that in Jesus Christ, we do have a mediator. A mediator far greater than Moses. One who didn't raise a wooden staff but one who was nailed to a wooden cross. One who the Bible says knew no sin but became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, was treated like us, was treated like a sinner, dying in our place, receiving the punishment that you and I justly deserved. And just like the Red Sea parted in two, making a way for the Israelites to access the land of promise, we read that when Jesus breathed his last breath, the veil in the temple also tore in two, making a way for sinners like you and me to access a holy God. On the other side of every Red Sea moment in our lives is God, is the loving presence of God. And he says, if you trust me, I will fight for you. You just need to be still and you see what I can do. 
And at the end of that journey, as long and windy as it is, I promise you, I will give you myself. I will give you myself. Will you trust him this day? The God who fights for us, the God who goes before us, if we would only be still. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that for many of us um, on this week, when that is all about giving thanks, I know that many of us look around at our lives and at the world we're living in, and it is hard to feel gratitude. For many of us, we, we look in front of us and we see this massive abyss we look up and we see the full weight of Pharaoh's army descending upon us. For many of us, it just feels like our lives are imploding and it is hard in these moments to trust that you will provide for us. But for those of us who find ourselves in that space today, I pray that again we would throw ourselves on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, who because of his life, death, and resurrection makes a way, who reminds us that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, we can't do it on our own, and so we cling to you over and over again. We thank you for your grace, your constant mercy and faithfulness that continues to pursue after us even though we're constantly rebelling against you. We thank you for this word and this promise, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.